0: People need ordering in
1: prison.
2: Twelve Rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What. My name is Sam, as ever. I'm joined by Alex. Alex. And we are extremely happy to be here with the very long overdue guest, Shane Burley, who is the author of two books about anti-fascism. Actually, it's suggested somewhere in the text that he's the author of three books about anti-fascism, but I know two of them. The one we're talking about today is Why We Fight, essays on fascism, resistance, and surviving the apocalypse, which is out now in the UK, and I think from AK Press, and has been out in America for some time. And back in 2017, he also wrote Fascism Today, What It Is, and How to Fight It hard to end it, sorry, which is also out from AK Press. He's written from uh, ABC, NBC News, Jacobin, The Baffler, Al Jazeera, and uh, a bunch of other places, including this one here I can't pronounce, which I think is called Proteon. So the first thing I wanted to ask you is just to introduce yourself kind of beyond this slightly formal academic bio that i just given. What would you say to listeners about yourself that goes beyond this kind of yeah, this kind of formal setup that tells us something about what it is you're trying to do. Although I imagine that your name is familiar to the majority of people who are listening.
1: You know, that's so interesting. No one's ever asked me to describe myself beyond the bio. Um, so I, I don't know who I am. I've been lost in my professional life. Um, um, well, I guess I, I'm based out here in Portland, um, both a writer involved in social movements for years and years um, and started being concerned about the far right. Um before the large wave of the alt-right, so probably about 2010, 2011, uh, when Richard Spencer and other people started to appear on the scene. Um, I sort of started writing and chronicling that, um, and then I just kind of picked up the wave when it came, Um, but also part of mutual aid movements, labor, uh, solidarity networks, uh, and housing movements. Um, And so the new book is thinking about both those things together, um, kind of a sense of the apocalypse um, a sense of depression, the kind of a, a cultural malaise, but also why I am not depressed about it um, amidst the kind of ongoing crisis that will only probably get more severe in the coming years.
2: You're not depressed?
1: I, I'm less depressed. I, I am less depressed than common sense would dictate I should be.
2: It's very interesting. It's a very interesting kind of part of a bio that you are on average less depressed than perhaps you ought to be. It's a very good character trait. I uh, wish I also had that. So both the books are obviously about fascism. You paint fascism very broadly, and I'm not gonna kind of take you to task for this. Um, In the book we just wrote, we uh, say that fascism has been fundamentally kind of misidentified for the wrong um, thing. And yet, you know, neither of us are academics. Yes, fascism is a slur, but also slurs sometimes are quite useful. So I think this is the way in which I understand your use of the word fascism. But give us a sense of what it is you're describing when you use that term.
1: Yeah, I, this this is it's interesting how this I expected to get taken to task by people when the book, first book came out, uh, and I was not. And um, I always thought that was surprising because I do use an incredibly broad definition. The only I remember I think it was Rune Gupta. We were having a party after my first. Event was like, you know, your definition of fascism. You're just talking about reactionaries, and I was like, exactly. I'm saying that all reactionaries are fascists, and he's like, what? That's that's fucking wild. What? What? You know, that's way too broad. Um, but what I'm actually saying is that the what I would actually consider the pure, correct right wing position is embodied by a fascist politic, and it's one that I think. Is transhistorical to a point, meaning that fascism is the modern incarnation of a deeper philosophical impulse um, that makes up the right. And so when we call it fascism, we're actually talking about a uniquely modern phenomenon that's that's kind of at war with the Enlightenment values, which do mean lead towards the left, right? Even if we're talking about like Beltway conservatives, they're obviously very right-wing, but when we're talking about in a broader sense, they're not necessarily against the basic fundamental well it's debatable but they they at least they publicly argue themselves not to be you know enemies of the fundamental principles of democracy or at least like legal equalities or something like that so fascists fascists take the implicit inequality and make it explicit and so it's a much more broad category i talk about centralized identity and inequality as temples but then we can also add in like a revolutionary character uh an essentialization of violence there's a few other kind of principles that i think make up the whole picture but what's really important about this is that we can't reduce fascism to some of the principles by which it is usually reduced. So authoritarianism on the one hand, there's all types of authoritarians and authoritarians come in a whole number of packages. Uh, so it's, it, I think that's not a good baseline totalitarianism, on the other hand, it's something that I don't know if is even uh, functionally possible in the way that people use it. So I don't think that's a really good marker. Um, you know, fascist governments were primitive states. They were not. They were nothing compared to like the U.S. government. Uh, take something like Nazi Germany simply was not capable of the kinds of things that like the U.S. CIA was capable of. So it's hard to actually say, well, that's the totalitarian government compared to what? Compared to modern like Western democracies or imperial nations. Um, so that's not a good marker. Um, nationalism, is again also not a good marker because we're not always talking about nations. We're talking about other types of identity in some cases. I mean, where does the men's rights movement fit if we're talking about nationalism as opposed as, as, in coordinating the nation states or people, uh, uh, ethnic groups without states or? Uh, nationalisms that take a left character, how do they play with it? So I actually think like even saying nationalism is sometimes problematic because it leaves some things out. So we use this intentionally broad definition to look at a trend. And in doing so, we start to see what things have in common with each other, I think. So what, for example, does um, the men's rights, the alt-right have in common with paleoconservatism, have in common with Ulster loyalists in Northern Ireland, have in common with uh, the BJP in India have in common with Bolsonaro, elements of Bolsonaro's movement, Are, is there a commonality there? And if there is a commonality, then we're actually talking about something much more uh, complicated and persistent. Um, and I think it actually helps define our politics in the inverse of that. This is runs directly counter to a number of people. So Dave Renton did another blurb for your book, right? I don't think he would agree with me on this. I interviewed David very recently. We didn't talk about this. We, we talked about things we agree with, but um, I'm assuming uh, given like his writings, his discussion on post-fascism um, and his dislike of like uh, Roger Griffin and other people. Uh, he probably would disagree on those sorts of points. And totally fair to disagreement. But I am a little bit more swayed by the Roger Griffin type new consensus approach with that really broad uh, ideational definition of fascism
2: yeah i think overall in that kind of uh debate i do also side more with david renton and what i see is that kind of you know um yeah material kind of grounding but i do think there's a space for roger griffin i also think it's an absolutely baller move on the part of roger griffin in the 1990s to be like this is the new consensus uh, <laughs> the, the book that i've written it is the only one. And i think it was more... correct um yeah, well, but you know yeah.
1: there there is i think room for both in a way like um you know like i just i just got a quote from renton for an article i'm doing on the israeli far right and his point that he writes about about the mobilization of the far right to the center right basically the ability to, to mov- move the, the center right to the far right it's particularly true in israel um, where you know uh, far right wing parties are able to move Likud uh, by basically forcing coalition governments but also moving the public that being said those far right parties are so clearly within the new consensus definition of fascism that it's so undebatable. So the process, I think, is described well by Renton. The definitional character, though, I think, is uh, taken up by George Moss and, and Roger Griffin and others. And it actually characterizes the kind of ethnic politics of Shahs or Israel Baitanya or something like that.
0: I mean, I think, I think now, in this moment specifically, after Trump and after all that's happened, and with the kind of breaking down between the, the non-fascist conservative wing, and the fascist part of the right, we, we're starting to see things kind of merge together and get all very indistinct and a uh, uh, kind of unclear. I think I think the kind of a broader definition is probably more applicable in this moment.
1: I, you know, I think what what Renton and others are doing is actually centering violence and revolution, like open revolution, as the deciding factor in a fascist movement. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a reason to do this. A lot of people do this. Um, And I explicitly don't do this because there are fascist movements that I think are unquestionably fascist that are so metapolitical that they could never even engage in the the kind of discourse that those folks are defining as fascism. So, you know, if we look at like the pre-2014, pre-2015 alt-right, that was, you know, basically having conferences and trying to influence like art and things like that, it was clearly a fascist movement. There's n- really no question about it. But they weren't capable, or even publicly advocating, or probably even internally advocating for the kind of violence that you'd associate with a fascist movement. Instead, they're like a cultural movement. So, how do you rope those people in when you use uh, public displays of violence, or you know, uh, the, the being supra uh, democratic, or something, I mean, uh, being exceptionally anti-democratic, or something like that? How could you actually rope them in? And so, I think it's easier to actually think of it in Ideational terms, basically to think about it as ideologies, and to think about the other practical politics as strategic.
0: You you you, you mentioned that you would started following fascism far right movements, kind of quite early on in the kind of cycle of the alt right. Um, what what point did you did you feel that people started to take an interest um, in in this as a problem? Was it with yes. the the rise of Trump specifically, or was it uh, an earlier point than that? It was. It was actually an earlier point.
1: It was slightly earlier. Um, it was with hashtag Cuckservative that trended really big, and that came out of um, the right stuff in the Daily Show podcast networks in the U.S. So this was uh, at the time, let's say twenty fourteen. The alt right had a, a peak and a trough. It kind of had come and it was starting to go. And Richard Spencer was rebranding himself using identitarian language, like block identitarian and stuff, and. And was not using the term alternative right anymore, really. But then the second generation, like alt-right 2.0, picked up on the alt-right language, were using it, and they started to merge with Spencer. And they were pushing, like, trolling and, and hashtags and things as, like, the new methodology of the alt-right. Um, and so hashtag conservative came. And that was a really big deal. That got a bunch of news stories. Directly after that, they trended hashtag what is alt-right and hashtag alt-right. And so that was actually really where the where it wasn't, alt-right. It was alternative-right. The term alt-right probably wouldn't have been very heavily used. So that's about 2015, before Trump. So those people were doing podcasts about the Trump phenomenon that were already getting attention. So it was slightly before that. That being said, I mean, I remember pitching an article in 2014 to a publication who will remain nameless, but they were like, "Shame. none of these people will ever be a threat to anyone. <laughs> they are totally meaningless. Go focus on the police or something. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, like people had no conception of this. Now, I mean, uh, to say people had no conception of it is almost to give them a pass. There was a complete and total consensus that this would never, ever happen. You know, like that that, that we were so beyond the capacity to have a, a far right wing breakdown in the system that it was it was more than navel-gazing to even discuss it. It was like ide- ideological chicanery or something. Like, it was like So yeah, no people did not take this seriously whatsoever.
2: You mentioned that the response of the publication was to say go and write about the police and I wanted to kind of ask you about whether or not you think that the term fascism can include things that are uh, within, um, operate inside a broadly liberal order. Natasha Lennard in the introduction to your book uses a term also that I wanted to kind of ask about which is racial capitalism. This is a very interesting term because capitalism has been racial from the beginning but I was also kind of wondering what do you make of this term and what do you think is the connection of this term to fascism? Is it a way, is fascism a way of describing the racist authoritarian impulses that exist within liberal society? How do you see these two things as being related?
1: You know, I, I, I've been thinking about Israel a lot because I've been writing about Israel and I'm sitting with this stack of books on this, the Israeli right next to me. And one, one of the one of the points that's made is that the current problem in Israel is sort of the triumph of revisionist Zionism, which was not necessarily a fascist movement itself, but it had a fascist wing, which is, it was basically uh, attached to because of the ideological the nationalism, the ethnic politics, all those sorts of things you could not do without the fascist wing. It was always implicit to it. But then I think an even deeper argument would be made that you really can't have an ethnic politics that's ever a democracy. It's simply not a democratic notion. Uh, Ethnostates even of the most leftist variety with, you know, the IRA or something like that. Like there's really no way of developing a liberatory movement that can really bear this out. And instead, actually, it creates a situation in which the logical conclusion of the social trajectory is on the right. So... Um, there's a number of writers that would talk about like the why labor Zionism gave way to revisionist Zionism because they capitulated with ethnic politics from the beginning. They, they talked about class, they were a class movement, but they gave in to ethnic politics. Um, and so the underlying lesson there, at least for me is that there is no left nationalism, but you, whether or not you sympathize with liberation movements, that's a different story, but like a true left nationalism is not possible. I think that in the same way, the underlying values the underlying conditions of, uh, of these kind of liberal democratic societies is so fundamentally unequal that fascism is its logical conclusion. There's really no way to um, build a complex set of identities on racial inequality, to build up economic systems on colonialism, exploitation and slavery and not have that be the underlying logic of the system. In a weird way, fascists get society in a way that, that liberals don't they get that there's stratification. They get that that's actually the, not natural in the biological or, or ephemeral spiritual sense, but it's natural to the social scene to have so, forced stratification and racial capitalism, like you said, is the only capitalism that exists. Um, it's almost like we don't need the racial part in that phrase because the capitalism does it just fine. Um, and so what fascist movies do is they take the implicit and make it explicit. I, I I'm blanking who it was, maybe it was uh, Foucault that said that fascism is basically colonialism turned back on, on uh, a,
0: who was it? Is that, there, yeah.
1: Right, um, turned back on the European mainland. So it is the implicit underlying uh, structures of the capitalist economy and the modern nation state system then turned back on itself. It's It's actually the full realization of what the underlying contradictions are. Um, so I, I think that this gets back to if there's a revolutionary component to anti-fascism or if it's just about fixing The errors that occur like th- there, there's only one option to really confront Fascist insurgency, which is to take to task the very foundations of these societies um, And uproot them um, and uproot those problems and that's not an easy That's not an easy thing because there's no actual example of this happening in history. We do not have a revolution like none other. We actually have a history of revolutions like all others, uh, which have failed to to, uh, meet full revolutionary um, and utopian goals. Instead, they just kind of capitulate and hope for something better. But that's one of the problems here is that we have a long legacy of failed attempts at full liberation and instead maintain these hierarchies. And so that's the fundamental, I think, um, cooperation that happens between liberal society
2: and fascism so i have two questions and I'm not quite sure which one to ask first so the first one i think is about something else that liberals are really not very good at dealing with in politics which is apocalypticism you mentioned uh from uh, who is of course not a fascist in any sense at all um who has a kind of strain of apocalypticism in his thought, and you know there's also mentions of uh, Benjamin, uh, Walter Benjamin, uh, who, of course, has a kind of apocalypticism of his own. And perhaps you could say the same for other members of the the Frankfurt School. So the question is, like, what is the proper political use of apocalypticism? What use could this idea be put to? And how can we kind of wrestle it back from fascism? Could it be used by the left? Could it be wielded by the left?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, so the right uses apocalypticism because they are correct, because this is an apocalypse um, and we are living in an absolute crisis. This is one of the realities of it. This this sort of compulsive hopefulness that you get from the liberal left is one based on a faith in the system of reforms, one which is absolutely incapable of dealing with ecological and economic and social crisis. Right? There's absolutely no way that you can stop the wave of mass killings with gun control measures. There's no way you can stop the wave of police murders by creating you know, citizen review boards. There's no way you're going to stop um, like the massive, the absolute staggering devastation that, uh, that um, climate change is going to bring, you know, by, by having like, you know, hybrid cars or something. Don't get me wrong, I, I do have a hybrid car, please recycle. That's great, oh, why not? Um, but the reality is that these are really serious problems. And ones that, who's, um, a lot of the nightmares that are coming are completely without the ability to even stall into a degree. So people know that, people live in the real world. I think that there is a, uh, this is a common feature to modern society, lots of writers. Unfortunately, mostly writing wing writers talk about this underlying anxiety and tension that people have. People do know that, for example, like American society uh, whose consumption is built on the ill-gotten gates of imperialism is unsustainable, that there's really no way to keep a lot of these systems going. And even though like we're facing, you know, staggering inequality in the U.S., there's still like a global kind of stratification. Um involved. And so I, I think that these tensions are very, very present in people's lives. Um, and you see them in a lot of the ways that people are, are starting to build out that, that participating crisis. So for example, uh, around the economic crisis, 2007, 2008, you basically had people confronting falling real wages by taking out loans they could never pay back, buying multiple houses, basically living um, in the now in a way that negates the future because there is no guaranteed future. And there's a, there's a lot of kind of examples of this that are kind of accelerating. So can, can the left use apocalypticism? I mean, for one, I think it has to because the left a good left has a real vision for how to solve problems. And to do that you have to live in the real world and to not look at a potential apocalypse or a living apocalypse is to not live in a world where you can develop solutions to real problems. I mean, that that's just the bottom line. Like if you think that cap and trade is going to do anything other than slow things by a millisecond, then you're not gonna provide anything to the working class. Um, but you know, I think in a lot of ways the U. This is—it's it, easier for me to talk about the U.S. and its kind of Protestant traditions than it is for me to talk about other places. Though it's, it's reflected in other countries as well, but there is this kind of um, millennial millennial area. <laughs> I, I am just a, a bumble of words but there is this kind sort of millennialist tradition millenarian tradition of uh, apocalyptic thinking of waiting for the apocalypse to come um, as if it could come at any moment and this has dotted the American landscape it has an effect on the politics and it's especially had effect on the politics since the 1950s um, what I talk about in the book the Paradox style of American politics um, but it goes way back and it comes back in a lot of ways from the the Protestant traditions and Calvinist traditions that that formed a lot of the Kind of underlying um, ethical systems that back up capitalism and the political sphere uh, but that and 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 because of that i think where we're, that's inescapable i think that thinking is really deep in our culture and while we should critique it and be involved and not and not, certainly not give way to paranoid thinking and conspir- conspiracism we should also think about the that as an opportunity to be challenged because part of the 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 the, the Millennial narratives, the apocalyptic narratives, is that there's a crescenzo to things. And at the end of them, there is theoretically something positive, right? There's like a messianic conclusion to some of these. So instead, why don't we intervene on that narrative? You know, there's nothing about an apocalypse that's guaranteed. And even in apocalyptic narratives, it's really unclear about how it's going to play out. And it usually plays out in the positive. And so I think instead, thinking, what, how are we actually going to intervene on that? How are we going to embody the best of the apocalyptic creation? Not to hold it back, not to live in a fantasy world, but to dive headfirst off of it. How do we come like fully loaded with the ability to say, like, no, we're taking this crisis and we're pushing fully to the other side of it so that we can have something new?
0: I had a, I had a question about uh, um, Portland. Um because it 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 kind of fascin- it fascinates me as like a particular area because it it's got this very progressive image but of course you know Oregon is one historically one of the most racist states in the whole of America and there is there seems to be something specifically a very distinctive character to that specific northwest area um, with its own kind of like. Uh, particular balance of forces. There's a very strong anti-fascist presence, of course, but there is a this kind of white separatism as well. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you kind of trace that um, playing out over the past kind of 10 years or so?
1: I think it actually is a microcosm of the larger dynamics. So the U or Oregon was started as a white ethnostate, basically. It started as an exclusivist white state. And there's many generations of attempts to clear out non-white folks, Chinese exclusion, first generation of the Klan, which was as large here as it was anywhere. Various levels of exclusion that have taken place. Um, you know, exclusive of black communities in Vanport and other parts of the city where they're brought in, uh, for, you know, to work on chips, for example, but then we're, you know, basically put to the worst areas of town and run off. So th- there's various generations of this happening that plays into a lot of the actual current conditions of the city, which is basically a white gentrified um, uh, commercial zone, you know, whereby. Uh, its liberal politics are actually recuperated by its branding you know so the progressive political brand really is about selling portland more than anything else it's certainly not about inclusion if you look at the, any of the neighborhoods that were previously black neighborhoods are now very very expensive white tech neighborhoods uh, same thing that it played out in other cities so I, but i think the dynamics the actual demographic dynamics are set up by those earlier conditions and multiple generations of it. And it's maintained by like a particularly pernicious police force and other institutions that have allowed for that. At the same time though, those politics, those politics which are sort of deeply underlaid the social systems are actually on the surface, like just a few minutes outside the city. And I'm not the kind of person that I, I think it's super inappropriate to throw rural people under the bus as though there's some kind of like racist monolith or something like that. But there is like deeply deep red politics um, in areas about Oregon. Oregon is a largely rural state. There is a, a, a freeway, I-5, that runs through the city that links up a few cities, that runs through the center of or to the right, to the left of the state, but it links up a few cities. So those urban areas, and then maybe Bend, a little bit more east, are deep blue political areas. Uh, and then uh, we were talking about areas that are uh, you know timber, mining, ranching, farming areas, things like that outside of it. And there's a political tension, obviously, when those blue areas are so removed from the reality of the other areas on the one hand, but then also the political um, levers are being controlled by cities when the vast majority of the area land mass is not uh, in cooperation with those cities. So there's ends up being like a policy disparity that creates a lot of tension and anger. There is an insurgent white supremacist component to this though, and that I think it comes back to that blow back in. That tension plays out in very real ways and, and these areas so like for example um i was uh, i was thinking i was talking to my wife about this back when i was very young my dad fought really hard he was a bus driver a union bus driver he fought really hard to carry a gun at work um, he used to carry a gun at work all the guys used to carry guns at work he fought really hard they lost that i remember him telling i remember this happening when i was young but when i got older i was like well, why do you do that he's like oh it's the neo-nazi skinheads every day they'd come on the bus and start fights with people Every park in town, basically, we're talking like big historic parks, you know, Pioneer Courthouse Square, which everyone loves to visit in Portland, filled with neo-Nazi skinheads in the '80s. It was so um, profound that people felt uncomfortable just walking through the city. This was the k- kind of a countercultural character of the city, and there's multiple generations that have played out like this. Today, it's it's less likely to be neo-Nazi skinheads and more likely to be Proud Boys or or maybe some other kind of formation. But there's multiple generations of this, and it never went away. So I think that that clash continues to play out, and I think Oregon's also very ill-equipped in being able to confront it because it has given into, I guess we could call it a racial capitalism that has maintained a character of being kind of a white ethnostate that now uses ostensibly anti-racist politics simply to to bring in more capital, which then replays the continual uh, story of gentrification and eviction.
2: What's happening now with the Proud Boys in Oregon and the surrounding area? There were a few clashes a while back, but I don't know much recently. What's going on? I mean, they've had
1: less events recently. There's been some in a a nearby, smaller, uh, I I guess it would be um, like a suburban town, Oregon City, which is near Portland, maybe 20 minutes out. There's been some uh, events there. They've had less, though. There's been a lot of instability in the Proud Boys. The Proud Boys are the definition of an unstable organism that can't, That that, that I think it's it's time is limited. Those people and those ideas and stuff they go on to something else. But the as a a formal organizational structure, it's really volatile. Um, And that was incredibly heavy up through the summer, um, and then through the election, it has quieted down a bit. And this summer, it's been a little quieter than I thought it might be. Um, But yeah, that those rallies, those events and stuff continue to happen. They have to find flashpoints though. Either it's responding to what they call antifa, which is usually not antifa or it's it's fighting about masks or demasking vaccines or it's about um you know the the election being trolled stolen from trump you know by pedophile satanists or something so like it has to have a catalyst um and i think maybe they're just not taking the bait as much that being said they still show up pretty regularly just not with the quite large size and frequency they were for a couple years
0: it's funny with the proud boys because whatever happens well, this is gen- for general, but whatever happens in America often replicates itself in the UK in a diminished form. And, you know, Proud Boys was such a big thing in America. And uh, here we had a Proud Boys UK for, like, two seconds. And I actually saw a Proud Boy full dressed up in a MAGA hat and a shirt and everything in Doncaster Station when I was coming out on the train. And, uh, and I just kind of did a double take and went on my way. But, of course, it's a, a different thing in America. There's, there's another, another um, ghoul... Who is kind of unit? Who came out of Portland? Of course, it's Andy No, who you've kind of had some skirmishes with. Um, you did this kind of quite incredible Twitter thread about uh, his book when it came out, which I was thoroughly entertained by, and I read read all the all the takes uh, on it. Um, how do how do you think his kind of model of of, of generating kind of Outrage and sympathy, and then ma- raising money. How 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 kind of sustainable do you think that is? Because we we had a similar kind of deal with Tommy Robinson in the UK, where he would like get himself into a big scrape, trump it up, and then uh, and then raise a lot of money off it and get a lot of attention off it, and then the cycle would start again. And eventually, he, Tommy Robinson had a diminishing return, so he was deplatformed and kind of faded away. Do you think the same thing could happen with Andy? No. Or is he, has he kind of struck a kind of way of keeping this thing going? I
1: mean, I think he's more stable than, than Tommy Robinson. I mean, I think that Tommy Robinson um, analogy actually works really well for a lot of these figures. But the problem is that the Andy you note know, isn't actually involved in activism, so they don't have the, the in-space component, really. Um, he also uses a little bit more neutral language in a lot of the cases. What would get him deplatformed is if twitter and other social media make a stance on his use of like um uh like mugshots and personal information and tweet threads and stuff that could be something that pulls it and i think in a certain at a certain point he does have diminishing fundraising returns but again he has a very brilliant grift here like he has taken this this um this Antifa so-called victimization of him to like really catastrophic levels. So like very recently, maybe a few months ago, he showed up at like some anti-fascist or militant rally, you know, dressed up and basically let himself be revealed and then ran away and hid and then, you know, did a bunch of fundraising around it. These things seem very intentional to, to me. Um, his book is very shallow in content, but very heavy on his feelings about, you know, the pernicious Antifa threat, lots of claims that can't be possibly be verified. Um, or things that just have no evidence whatsoever. Um, and so I think he has the ability to keep this thing going. That being said, again, one one thing I think is important is that there's absolutely no way that people respect Andy. No, he, in his world, strength is important and he emphatically doesn't have it. Like that's part of his brand. And so his people only use him in as much as he is useful to them. You know, that he is useful as a symbol of, Antifa's, um, you know, uh, degeneracy or something. Uh, so I think that actually makes it hard for them to want to support Andy. No, in the long term, um, he's also done a lot of fundraising at this point, and now he's actually trying to make it in a career model as an editor at Post Millennial, which really hasn't taken off. Um, but he has a few secret weapons. One of which is this ongoing litigation where he's trying to sue what he thinks are members of Rose City Antifa, which he thinks has something to do with his um assaults none of which makes any sense none of which has any evidence um and that i think actually has a lot more benefits for andy no than the actual financial components of the lawsuit itself i think it just allows it to stay in the media cycle so i think he can keep it going for a while um but unless he kind of changes his tricks he's not going to be there and i think like the 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 far-right grifters that have done this well have created an, enough of an enduring brand that they have been past their single issues and Andy know, has yet to do that. Um, but that doesn't stop him being, from being incredible dangerous. Even if he's only has another year or two in him, it's, it's, it's shocking the level of damage that one person can actually cause. Um, and the way that he's helped perpetuate conspiracy theories and Antifa blaming has caused real, real violence.
0: The, the thing about Antifa specifically is it, 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 I, I did I, after your tweets. I did have a read of the book, and um, at least a little bit of it. And the, 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 the kind of conspiracy he's indulging with, indulging with antifa is kind of wild. The way that kind of everything, uh, kind of to the left of liberalism, is all antifa. Um, you know, the Black Lives Matter protest, all antifa. So any kind of radical social center that's you know been around for decades or years and years is an antifa hub, and all this kind of stuff um It just kind of makes me think that that's also another reason why he's not taken so seriously. Um, and I, he did seem to have that moment when he got milkshaked when people like Jake Tapper were coming out, and I think that's definitely that's definitely stopped now.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think his he has been so cooperative with the far right, he's been so blaming a victim of violence that I think it's, at this point it's hard to. It's hard. What was happening was that he was being treated as an unpopular journalist, which he's not like he's a political activist, uh, whether or not he's involved in a person. activist doesn't really matter. He's involved as an agitator. He doesn't really do reporting. Um, like I, I saw no reporting on Antifa. I, I've yet to find an article that would qualify as reporting. Like, you know, like I often do opinion reporting, but I still do the normal reporting stuff like fact check stuff, have interviews, have, have countering opinions, just like the normal reporter stuff. He does not do that. And so yeah, it's really hard to actually rope him in there. And so I think what people have started to acknowledge that what he's doing is a political performance that has no component of journalism. So you're not defending journalists or journalism by defending him. You know? At this point, you're just defend- doing exactly what he wants, which is participating in this performance.
2: I remember Tommy Robinson had a slogan, t shirt, which just had the slogan on imprisoned for journalism, which I thought was a I
1: remember slogan. that.
2: What a brilliant slogan. I really want one. I think it's so good.
1: I think we should take it from him because like, you know, when he would go after like my book events or like my articles, I would just repost be like, anti free speech advocate Andy? I mean, just do the same thing, you know? Um, If he wants to play it like that, then why not? Just use his terms against him because that's what he does. Like, you know, when it comes to anyone on the left speaking or having any kind of platform, he will do whatever he possibly can to to shut that down. It's such a charade.
2: Perhaps this thing we're talking about with Andy No is the key to a rather cryptic remark that you make in the book and I've been kind of fascinated by ever since I read it. Um, The dominant feature of the far right in the Trump era is not the uniformity of ideology or even the proposed extremism of the platform. But it's commitment commitment to the propaganda of the attack. This is the kind of writing people do when they've just read a lot of Benjamin, and I I fully support it. Um, I want to write like this. But what does it mean? Uh, What is the propaganda of the attack, and why is it the unifying or dominant feature of the far right in the Trump era?
1: Yeah, I think it's in a way it's kind of the surrealian attack on bourgeois normalities, and like, what does. What does violence provide us? Because what, what violence does is it has a very strong, I think, a metapolitical narrative to it. So on the one hand, violence is the reification of true Americanness. So if we think about, you know, I was thinking about Pistone a little bit because I was writing about Pistone in a different essay in the same book. Um, but there's a certain bifurcation in the commodity form by where people are able to sort of see what they call productive labor, you know, producers, craftsmen, farmers, things like that. Um, and that's a component of capitalism. Another component of capitalism is what they might deem unproductive labor, you know, finance capitalism, lawyers, things like that. Well, both are capitalism, right? They, they, you know, one isn't the better capitalism than the other, but what the violence does is it has an implicit narrative of the real American, which is does work with their hands, which is masculine and simple, which isn't kind of perverted by ideologies and academics and philosophers, and that is willing to risk something. So they go out and they assert power um, Upfront, using hard power forces violence versus, um, you know, someone who might be has like, it's like smarmy, you know, maybe uses irony, other kinds of Ivy League, um, and um, urban behaviors, things like that. So violence in, implicitly has a narrative to it, someone engages in violence, it's a proxy for being an honest, true person that presents themselves as they are. The other thing is that we live in a world of soft power, of negotiations, of diplomacy, of cooperation, and all of those things have gotten us to what? You can't pay your fucking rent? Like what does cooperation diplomacy get me when I can't pay for health insurance? And so in a way it's the the, the politics of the violence is a rejection of the soft power world that somehow collaboration in that way gets us anywhere. And in a way, national populism is inherently that rejection of soft power and a celebration of of taking power by force and by will. Um, So all of that I think is in a way contained in political violence. but in a way, it also it is what links them together. Since if they were to actually explicate ideologies, they would be far different. Inside the Proud Boys, there lacks of ideological uniformity. They could not tell you what the Proud Boys are all about in any real, like philosophical sense. And actually, when cornered, they usually give pretty standard Republican talking points. It's not actually even that out there. It's actually pretty mainline Republican stuff. So maybe to the conservative Republican, but not not really that out there. What defines the radicalism is their willingness to violence. The idea that they have to like in a in like a, a like a Karl Schmidt kind of way supersede liberal democracy by acting as extra normal actors in it, intervening on conflicts when society was unable to do it. And so a lot of this is about the failure of democracy, the failure of liberal values, the failure of intellectualism and experts and technocratic leaders, and instead taking action by relying on that kind of true honesty, that violence where you take and you use your body, the only true thing we really have, one that's only done for productive work and intervening on conflict. And so I think that there is a, a real reification of the political consciousness into just acting out. You know, if you go to some of these rallies, like well, these quote unquote patriot rallies, They're never there advocating things. They're always there defending things. I'm defending our communities from, of course, it's not their community. You know, they came from hundreds of miles away to come have this performance, right? We're defending democracy. We're not like, you know, trying to have elections stolen. You know, we're defending people from, you know, uh, unscrupulous pharmaceutical companies and their vaccines. We're defending people from attacks on democracy. All of the violence is put into this defensive mode where what they're doing is telling you that there is actually a pure democracy and the only thing that can defend is them that only thing that that not liberal norms, not uh, uh, democratic systems, not mass participation. No, the person who intervenes with violence. Um, and in a way, this is true of the open fascists too. Open fascists do reify violence as a really key component of the ideological spectrum. Like it is a place by which human beings realize their true humanness. Not through like shared emotions and common humanity. No, that's a lie. That's liberal notions that undermines our real humanity. Evolution was not built on such things. No, we build our, um, what, what's that phrase? I actually use it for, for something quite the opposite, but we build our cities in the shadow of Mount Vesuvius. We live our lives in a state of war. There's a certain, this this commitment to um, defining people only through violence because violence is the proper manifestation of a hierarchy. And that's how people assert their will and value. And so I think like when we think about what these politics actually are, it's much less about coherent ideas. It's much less about the ability of those ideas to take shape as an argumentation. Instead, those ideas are sort of supplemented by violence. Violence is what actually lays them into the culture. Violence is what supersedes the conversation and the argument.
2: I wanted to come back to this kind of idea, op- or this opposition between truth and, or truth as violence, and what you describe as a resistance society, which is something that you talk about, kind of or kind of note, has been produced through uh, mutual aid groups and so on. Maybe you could just describe um, how you see the emergence of resistance society and how it is we got to the situation in which, um, as you. Right, mass resistance is now a common sense community function. How did that happen?
1: So right now the conditions do not um, guarantee or foster a vibrant community experience or a human life. Like, you know, we're not living in a society that on any level maintains those structures that can be considered humane. So the actual act of survival is an act of resistance at this point because to actually get there requires breaking the fundamental rules of the society. You know, I was, there's was a sort of, um, I think it's crime think that actually put this out and I kind of thought it was good, was that the, the largest form of expropriation at work is stealing, stealing work, stealing time, stealing objects from work, stealing money from work. In a way, those things are done so that people can live a vibrant life. They have to break the law so they can even live, right? So that their life can have meaning and value and have the things that they need to be able to express themselves and that kind of thing. But I think if we think about it actually in a much bigger sense, right now, we're watching as, it's not even just an ideological choice to engage in organizing mutual aid where it's a functional requirement. So, you know, I I, 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 I tell the story and, I, and I, I really hope I don't offend anyone. Apparently, every time I tell the story, someone's like, I was in Food Not Bombs and it was great. But I was in Food Not Bombs for a long time and it was fucking terrible. And uh, <laughs> we, we served terrible food and I was fucking hungover and, you know, probably hadn't showered in a week and it was terrible. And the reality was, is that the soup kitchen that we talked down about all the time down the street, did it much better than we did. You know, we had great politics and we, we, you know, we radicalized people. We did all this stuff, but on the basic human support function, we were not very dependable and good. Some groups have done better than others, but in general, even the best mutual aid group um, and a lot of cases didn't do that good. Now there are good examples of really great metro groups. So like you know the Black Panther Party programs or um, Survival, Pending Revolution programs. Those were real dependable programs, but a lot of radical programs weren't. Um, But what's happening now is that state functions in NGOs, other things, are actually incapable. They don't just provide bad services. They don't just bring them in with a tinge of condescension and and, and humiliation and exploitation. They don't even do it with those caveats well any longer. And we saw it really clearly um, during the the coronavirus pandemic. And we saw that mutual aid groups formed, uh, sometimes spontaneously, other times they formed out of really long-standing organizing networks. But the reality was that they formed with the capacity to help people because people absolutely needed it. And then those evolved, and those were there when the protests started, and they supported the protests. The protests couldn't continued on for days and days and days without those mutual aid so networks to support and then those ones had grown even further, so they went and supported people who were being affected by the forest fires and this is actually has changed the very fabric, I think, of social relationships. I know in the US, but I think worldwide, that there is an increasing direction towards that collaboration as being the foundations for how we survive problems and how we build friendships and community and relationships. They're being founded on what used to be seen as extra normal organizing, something you might do in the extra, or something someone that is part of a radical subculture would do. And to do that, is to actually engage in sort of a dual power project. What's happening now is that the basic methods of survival are also the methods by which you literally overthrow a society by by creating something new in the shell of its dying kind of carcass. And so that is in a way, a realization of the dialectic that actually is something forming that can take on something else. And so I think when a resistance society now is a combination of two things. It's the material conditions, what we're seeing, you know material deprivation and the collapse of nation states and and the volatility of the economy and at the same time we're seeing ideas floating around there is uh ideology and and idealism in it and those things sort of uh, dictate the direction and that's what i talk about in the book is that there is a choice between uh, like socialism and barbarism. There is actually a choice between living and dying, you know? Um, the same conditions that bring about revolutionary movements that really do change things also bring about fascist movements, bring instability and in crisis. There's no reason to believe that someone looks at, at deprivation and crisis and assumes, great, I am now going to abolish capitalism. That is not necessarily the logical conclusion. In fact, uh, if I mean, studies really do show that when people actually see failure after failure in their life, they are less likely to challenge those social systems. And so I think it's important to intervene in an ideological way, but the conditions have to be there, and those things are starting to unite. And so I think now this is why, in a way, the apocalypticism is useful because we have to live in the real world. We have the radicalization of conditions. I think. Um, Uh, paxing all these uh, mobilizing passions but now we have to actually involve ourselves in them we can't just say oh how terrible no we have to say no now we have to come in and do something now we actually can come and do something and that's not to celebrate collapse we really shouldn't that's a lot of pain there but we should also live in the real world that when there is nothing there we're free to build whatever we want and that is a a kind of opportunity that has not always historically been there
0: you um you write in another essay that and I agree. Um, What stops white nationalists is activists stopping white nationalists. And I think it is really important to uh, acknowledge that it's anti-fascists who played the the kind of key role in uh, stopping this kind of cycle of of fascism that's just kind of closing or mutating into something else. Um, But I wanted to ask specifically about um, state anti-fascism. And in the UK specifically, we've seen the uh, like a massive state intervention from kind of counter-terror policing organizations and units into that kind of far-right terror. And also after, in the US, after the um, kind of riot at the Capitol, we've seen the FBI get heavily involved in identifying these people and prosecuting them. We saw with the mission, the plot to uh, kidnap the Michigan governor that, you know, the, the FBI was kind of heavily involved in that with kind of informants and things like this. Um, how do we as anti-fascists or how do anti-fascists as, as movements, you know, as radical activists who are opposed to counter terror policing and policing in general, how do we kind of uh, deal with this kind of sudden intervention of of state kind of interests? Well, first off, it's
1: not anti-fascism. You know, the, the state <laughs> anti-extremism is, is not. It's it's um, it's it looks, and I think to a degree as though they're doing what anti-fascists do, but with such a fundamentally different conditions and reasons and consequences that I think it's a misstep to think that there's a possibility of collaboration. I think, you know, it's funny, you're not the only person asking me about this recently, but I think there's something seductive about the idea that maybe the police can do it to them. Like maybe, Maybe all that violence that's done to us, maybe we can wield it against them. And um, the reality is that it doesn't work that way. Um, that whatever institutions you build up will be used against you. Um, so this is true. So you know, I'm in the U.S. We don't have hate speech laws here, um, and I would argue against the inclusion of hate speech laws in the Britain. They do have hate speech laws, or things approximating them. The reality is that hate speech laws are uh, used like all laws in disproportionate ways towards marginalized communities. They're not used to really undermine social movements. They're not dependable for doing those sorts of things. Now, if you have hate speech laws and you can use them as part of an activist strategy, great. Not that sounds great to me, whatever. Um, I just wouldn't advocate them as like the, the forefront option for state intervention. Um, because the reality is that increased legalization or increased legal, um Interventions create increased opportunity for state intervention and social movements, even when you think that you've created a foolproof way that it's used against them instead of against you. Um, And anti-extremism rhetoric and tactics has the effect of creating a both sides-ism response. So for example, when they were kicking Uh, a bunch of far groups off of facebook that kicked off it's going down and crime thing too you know right like yeah both sides all the extremists right um and so instead i think it's important to build community um support and again this comes back to the mutual aid question are we creating stuff ourselves or are we turning to a system that's already unequal that is falling apart and that's been used to victimize us i don't think that's a dependable solution now again but you know if 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 you can use laws to you know, sue transphobic, feminist writers and stuff, great. Like I, I 100% support that. I just don't think that, that we can depend on the state to do that sorts of work in an equitable and long-term revolutionary fashion. One that has the ability to uh, get us where we wanna be. You know, A social movement isn't just solving a problem. It's also building the conditions for a long-term change. And you know, hopefully, I feel like when done well, a movement has the ability of sort of having a now and later effect. Now we solve this X, Y, and Z problem, but we have the ability of you know, building consciousness and coordinating and organizations and things like that that can push things much further, that can reach a tipping point where you really start to see something um, radically change or you unseat the kind of conditions of the old society. So I, I think we should participate and focus our energy on that. That being said, there are some things in the counterterror or counter extremism, counterterrorism world that I actually think are worth kind of looking at. You know, a lot of those people I talk to actually aren't looking at legal interventions or law enforcement, they're looking at things like how do I create like Holocaust education in schools? I think those things are good. I think, you know, like creating like programs for kids in areas that can be targeted by like you know neo-Nazi gangs, that's good. You know, like a lot of those programs I think are good. And I think those are the kinds of things we can participate in on a non-state level, you know, building really strong communities. Cause the reality is that a strong community is not as likely to follow those sorts of things. You know, when you have a strong union workplaces where people are able to like support their families and and build supportive relationships, then they're not looking for these sort of ecstatic, violent relationships. And I think that's also a really important intervention. You know, the reality is that the left does not give people a lot of hope a lot of times, particularly the mainstream left. And so we have to actually offer something we have to show some, some actual results. You know, one of the things about violence, like that kind of violence you see at Prabowo Rally, is that it feels like you've accomplished something. Oh, wow, I stopped. I saved somebody. I hit that guy. It felt really strong. It was really powerful, kinetic emotion. And, you know, advocating for like the Green New Deal does not feel as satisfying as punching someone in a park. It just doesn't. So we need to, I think, have a left that's willing to risk something and win something. And that's also a piece of the anti-fascism.
0: Yeah, I mean, we, we agree. We're we're an abolitionist uh, podcast, of course. Uh, a quick example on the um on the kind of danger of the law, of course, is in the UK we have uh, racially aggravated harassment and racially aggravated offences, and a significant proportion of those offences, when they're charged, are against the police. Um, so not against the police are the police are the victims of the of the racially aggravated harassment. So a law written to protect minor racial minorities is then turned to uh, further um, further uh, uh, victimize those minorities um, as well. So yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think and asking the anti-fascists whether the police can ever really be on their side. I mean, throughout these rallies where there's an anti-fascist contingent, And a far right contingent. It's not the far right people that are going to be attacked by the cops. It's just not. I mean, that's just like the being real about how the stuff plays out. I have
2: one final question, which is to go back to something we talked about earlier and ask, what is the best in apocalypticism? This is a phrase you used earlier. Uh, I think it's a really kind of interesting phrase to think about uh, how we respond to the climate crisis and all the kind of the things that are going to come out of that. Otherwise, I'm going to suggest that the thing that I guess we could draw from this conversation is, you know, please recycle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, recycling is the vanguard of the revolution. Um, I think. Mm-hmm. I think that there is a, 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 a mythology about crisis and collapse. Uh, that it becomes like The Walking Dead, where people kind of revert to tribe, what, what they're being called tribal norms, as if those are actual norms, um, engaging in very cruel violence with one another, um, sort of like when we take off the clothes of civilization underneath were these like beastly creatures um, that were only tamped down by laws and courts and religions and things like that. But underneath, we really are these kind of like brutal um, sadists. And that is 100% factually untrue. Like you can look at crisis situations for the last thousand years and you can see that outside of elite panic, outside of the rich people who think their wealth is gonna be taken, people's natural reaction is to take care of each other. We don't, I I don't believe in like a human nature. I think that it can go any direction. We can be, you know, the same person can be like, this saint can also be a slave master. They can do all kinds of things. But the reality is that people generally want to take care of each other And because of that, there is an infrastructure that exists. There's already something there, a connection that people have and the ability and the knowledge that to actually flourish requires us working cooperation. You know, I I was talking to Scott Crow about this, you know, and he was talking, we're talking about guns and things. He's like, guns would be the 150th thing I would get in a crisis situation. The first thing I would do is get to know my neighbors. The second thing I would get to do is like get to know what they need. You know, those are the ways that people actually survive. So the strand of of apocalypticism that I think is positive is the one where we get a do-over, the one where a crisis, and we are in a crisis. This is actually a crisis. The only way through it is together. I mean, and and in a way that's should be hopeful because the dynamic that we have versus sort of the rich or the ruling class is that they have the money, but we have the people. So what actually survives the crisis is, is each other. And that's what we've always had. So we already had all the tools. Like We already have every ability to do this. We just have to decide we're going to, and we have to know how to actually reach out to the other. And God, let me tell you, talking to another human can be one of the most difficult, complicated things a person can do. But I think that is actually the heart of a revolutionary politics: is reaching out to another person and building the kind of bonds that we're told not to do. You know, I, I start the book with this quote from Gershon Sholem. I think he's talking about Hebrew. It says something to the effect of, um, you know, our story is told in the language of catastrophes. Um, Someday we'll turn against those who speak it. You know, we can't actually have the ability to turn against the language of catastrophe and to write something different down. That is totally within our power. We've seen it done a thousand times. What if we all participated? What if it wasn't just in, you know, some earthquake situation? What if it was everywhere all the time? What if that was the new baseline? It could be, and then the reality is that in you know this may be kind of like a like a sterner idea, but we could make that choice at any point in time, right? In a way, the idea that there are structures that stop us from doing it is ephemeral, um, and so I, part of the important act of resistance is taking on and engaging in care right now and doing all the things around it that need to be done to make sure that care is able to, to. Um, actually see it's it's full realization that includes anti-fascism that includes community self-defense because those things are needed to defend care those are acts of care in themselves mutual aid therefore is also an act of anti-fascism all those things work in a collaborative way so there is a strand of apocalypticism it's living in the real world but the only real answer to it is to collaborate with each other, to share things in such a profound way that it, it no longer even looks like the old world, right? Like our acts of survival won't even look like that. And the good news is that if we don't do it, we are all gonna die. There is no other option anymore, right? So in a way we have two options, right? We had socialism or barbarism, we have surviving and flourishing and changing the entire basic social fabric of society, or we have going off the cliff in 100 200, or 200 or 300 however long years it takes. So I think that that, in a way, is unmistakably hopeful, because we're looking at people that actually do, I think, see a way forward, that there is actually a way out of this. And it's not by reversing things, it's by going through them.
2: Thanks a lot, Shane. It's been really exciting and inspirational to talk to you. Do you have anything else you want to say before we go, anything you want to plug?
1: I don't think so. I'm doing a bunch of writing, so, so stay tuned. Um, and I'll hopefully be announcing next book projects here in the next couple of months.
2: Another book project.
1: Good Lord. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I'm I, a workaholic. Uh,
0: Why We Fight is um, is out now? Yes. I think it's actually not out in the UK till
1: August, though.
0: Right. Okay.
1: So, uh, so I think it's it's uh, just about out, but you can pre-order it now. It should ship pretty quickly. Great. Pre-order
0: uh, out- Why We Fight from AK Press. You can also go through various radical bookshops. They very much want to take your pre-orders, too, um, and... Yeah.
2: Make sure you don't buy the book that is also called Why We Fight. That is by Guillaume Faye, who is one of the members of the French New Right. If I, no, people
1: have done that. Do not do that. It's uh, <laughs> that, an awful book. You do not want to fame. read at all. <laughs> that will not make your day.
2: I promise. No. Yeah, I promise that Guillaume Faye is definitely not the best in apocalypticism. Although he is a, a catastrophist, so
1: <laughs> the worst in apocalypse. Yeah.
2: Thank you so much for coming, Shane. Absolutely. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed that, then you can help support the podcast on Patreon. All the support we get means a lot to us, and it really does help us grow this project. So that's Patreon.com/slash Twelve Rules for What, and you can sign up for as little as two dollars a month. Thanks a lot, and I will see you very soon. Twelve, Twelve. rules.
0: Twelve. Twelve.